What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm one of your hosts, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Hello, Ben. How's it going? It's going great. It's going great. It's a wet, cold, windy Saturday afternoon here in Vermont. A better day for podcasting there has never been. Well, it's really beautiful and blue outside here in New York, so... Yeah, but can you uh, go outside? But no one's outside. So <laughs> what a great opportunity to watch an old movie that no one's ever heard of before. Right. So this is Back to the Movies, a podcast where Nat and I revisit great years in cinema history, looking at the biggest hits, the biggest failures, the forgotten gems that made it what it was. And this is a very special episode because we have with us for the first time a guest. Nat, do you want to introduce our guest? Yes, our guest is a person that I've known my entire life and who... I've discussed many movies with over many, many years and over many, many cheeseburgers. Uh, my good friend, John Babcock. Hello, John. Hi, guys. How's it going? It's going, going great. well. Thank you uh, for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on virtually. <laughs> virtually. Um, John's with us through Skype because there's a partial quarantine in New York City and we're all trying to stay away from each other. So, yeah, uh, we've got him virtually, which is pretty much just as good as real yeah. life yeah hopefully. uh and john actually i think it was last year bought me for my birthday the dvd of the movie that we're going to discuss today so that's sort of why we've arrived at this as our fourth pick what movie is that mountains of the moon it's a bob rafelson movie that i got for you because i remembered it as a beautifully shot movie and i remembered liking it a lot and it was filmed the year you were born. So that was why I got it for you for your birthday. So. And now we have a whole podcast. Yeah, exactly. About... I did not know this was going to happen. But <laughs> it fits perfectly. Did you see this movie when it came out? When did you first see it? I remember seeing this movie on television, not in a theater. Um, I can't recall exactly where I saw it, but I was telling Nat, I believe I saw it on Bravo when Bravo used to actually show movies. Sure. Because it used to be an art house station instead of a reality TV show station. And I think before they they showed Housewives, they showed like marathons of like A Room with a View. Tell me about watching it on TV, John. Like what was the experience? Like you said that you thought it was beautifully shot. Um, do you have like an, an emotional memory of, the, of watching this movie for the first time? I have an emotional memory of a couple of scenes from the movie that I think I maybe invented a couple of them. In fact, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, we haven't talked about the plot, but I do sort of remember a more climactic source of the Nile reveal that I didn't see the second time <laughs> I watched it. <laughs> but uh, I remember liking the sort of buddy aspect, which I also maybe invented because they don't get along very well. Um, and the, the Indiana Jones sort of Discovery Explorer part of the movie, um, but I used to watch a lot of movies, so I kind of uh, maybe made up some of the things that I liked <laughs> about it upon rewatching. Now, this was your first time seeing it. Yes, it was. it was my first time seeing it. Yes. What did you think? Oh man, uh, <laughs> that was a really loaded sigh right there. Yeah, it was. I'm. I will say this: it was basically one of 
the movies I would imagine watching in eighth grade after we read <laughs> about those two guys. And then the teacher's like, uh, I don't need to teach for like three days. We're just going to watch this movie in chunks. <laughs> like it, it gets all the facts right. And the reading about it and the real stuff afterwards was way more involving and exciting than actually watching the movie. But the movie itself, it had some great moments, some great scenes, some great YouTube clips. That's sort of how I judge movies now. It's like, could I go onto YouTube and find, you know, they have like the official eight clips from the movie. Like six out of eight of those clips are really good. But the movie itself just didn't really work for me. It didn't track. That being said, I, I did enjoy a lot of aspects of it. You hit the nail on the head for me when you were discussing how exciting it was to research it after the fact, because I had sort of the opposite experience. When you told me you wanted to do this film on John's recommendation, I had literally never heard of it before. And that's reasonably rare for me. You know, I, I'm I'm a pretty serious cinephile. I, I, I at least like to track, you know, careers and movies. And even if I haven't seen them, at least have some sort of encyclopedic knowledge of, of what they are and what they're about. But I'd never heard of this movie. But I told myself that because I had no context for this film, that I would keep it that way. That's so rare that I can watch a movie knowing absolutely nothing about it. So I really wanted to preserve my ignorance, to, to live in that so that I could watch the movie for the first time knowing nothing other than the title. Unfortunately, the realities of podcasting are that I had to do a lot of work ahead of time, you know, prepping show notes and making sure that we had stuff to talk about in the episode. So I wound up doing a lot of the research that I didn't want to do ahead of time. And the very first thing I decided to do was watch the trailer, just so I kind of had a sense of where we were at. And let me tell you, this trailer is Ben Catnip. <laughs> <laughs> we start with some stuffy British people on an, an adventure in, you know, uncharted lands. And then we cut to legal drama in British courts and <laughs> parliament or whatever. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to love this movie so much. I'm so excited. <laughs> And it's directed by Bob Rafelson, who's a director I love, whose films, you know, with BBS, I, I adore. I was so, so pumped. And then I started to read about the people that this was about. And I'm like, this is an incredible story. This is going to be the greatest movie of all time. How have I never heard of it? And I sat down to watch it. And this has been a lot of buildup. And I'm not quite as negative on it as, I, as Nat sounds like he might be. But I had a similar reaction where I was like, Oh, I, you know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here. And I applaud what Rafelson and what um, the author, um, you know, of the book who then wrote the screenplay, William Harrison is doing, what the actors are doing. But it's just not connecting on a level of something like Lawrence of Arabia. Right. You know, I was expecting to get Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And instead I got sort of the school substitute version it's of like that. the reenactment it's like going to colonial williamsburg to me like <laughs> they got everything right they got the facts right they got the costumes right they got it all correct but it's just there there's no we gotta get to akaba i'm drying of thirst like there's sure. none of that there's none of the drama john i want to hear your sort of initial review but before we do i have to go on a quick tangent because you just said the word reenactment and i have a great reenactment story when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the Civil War, the American Civil War. I was really, really interested in it. 
And when I was mm, 10 or 11 years old, we went down to Gettysburg over the 4th of July, which, of course, is uh, the, the, the anniversary of the battle. And they do huge reenactments that, that whole weekend, that whole holiday weekend of, of some of the major moments like Pickett's Charge and stuff like that. And so I'm like, oh, we have to go. We have to go. I'm so excited. I've got my, uh, I've got my wool cap. Um, I've got my little bugle. And we go and we sit on these bleachers. And about half a mile away are like 50 dudes marching <laughs> for like three hours. That was the reenactment. Um, so needless to say... As you said, history is fascinating, but it's not always the most dramatic. So, John, now that you've seen the movie again in a new context, what was your reaction to it? My reaction was a little bit, why did I like this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'm glad we're talking about a movie that no one's heard of that none of us really like. By the way, it's not available on any major streaming services. If anyone wants to watch it, you either have to buy it on iTunes or YouTube or track down the full screen DVD. If anyone's listened this far without watching the movie. To be fair, like I I liked it the second time around. I just couldn't connect to the first time I liked it. And it became more of a study in what was wrong with the movie the second time I watched it. And it was fascinating if you try to watch it with that lens. I watched it twice and that's exactly, I analyzed the shit out of this movie. Yeah. More than any good movie I've ever watched. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because everything should work. There's just no overarching point, it seems. But it's fun to watch trying to figure out what didn't work exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the context of like Lawrence of Arabia or A Passage to India or any of those other sort of exotic Trek movies, it seems like it should do better than it does. But... It was really fun to watch. I will say this, you know, I, I recommend the movie. I think it's as a curiosity alone, it's worth checking out. There's definitely merits there. If you have any interest in the people involved or the story being told, you should see it once. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry if I was too down on it. Like, it, it was more just frustrating to me because I was like, man, they have all the pieces here ready to go. They've got it all. And like, they undercooked it or they overcooked it or something weird happened where it just didn't work out. Well, so I like the way Nat put it, where it has all the elements. Let's talk about those a little bit before we get into the plot. The first element, of course, being the story, the history, the true story that this is based on. This is the first time that we've had a movie that's based on something real. And that's always interesting because then you have something to compare it to. And of course, oftentimes fiction is more colorful and interesting than fact. But that might not be the case here. Um... Did you, are you a big history buff, John? Did you know a lot about this story before the movie or before revisiting it? I am not a big history buff. I'm a big history buff through movies, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know anything about this the first time I saw it. Um, but it was definitely a story that Americans know nothing about. And I think the American like take on exploration is a lot different than the British one. So it's curious to me that Rafelson thought this would be a great movie for an American audience because our exploration is westward and and our expansionist view isn't really educational the way the British was sort of colonial and and he and Richard Burton is a huge national hero right. and we, we modern, know nothing in about modern it. England yeah <laughs> which is I mean, it makes the fact that this movie had no international release all the more inexplicable oh, but interesting again, we'll talk about that later. Uh-huh. Um, 
So Nat, then do you want to do you want to take away some of the history stuff? You want to you want to give us a quick overview of who these men were and what this movie is about? Yeah, I mean this movie's about I'd say it's is it peak Victorian era? Like is this like the Victorian era that they're in? This is it, right? Like yeah, this Queen is, Victoria's yeah. daughter oh, yeah. thing and yeah, yeah, so these are yeah. these are I mean the Victorian era is pretty long. Yeah. She ruled right, for a long time. Yeah, it, this seems like it's right in the middle there. So these are this is a movie about two explorers of the Victorian era who are basically the rock stars of the Victorian era. I like how Ebert put it in his review. He called them astronauts. They were the astronauts of their day. They're super famous and they, they go out and do amazing things that no white people have ever done before. Richard Francis Burton, who's the main character, uh, he was an explorer who he like disguised himself to get into Mecca, which used to be impossible to do if you were white or non-Muslim. He translated books from Arabic. He spoke 26 different languages. He was an explorer. He was a writer. He was a spy. Accomplished swordsman. A swordsman. Yeah, he wrote in this movie. There's like, oh, you wrote the book on swordplay. So like, he's just, (laughs) he's awesome. Uh, And yeah, he just had all these crazy accomplishments and this crazy life of traveling across a much larger world than what we have now. You mentioned he was a translator. I want to just emphasize that quickly because he didn't just translate random books. He translated some pretty iconic ones. His was the definitive translation for a long time of, um, you know, a thousand one nights. So the Arabian nights, he translated the Kama Sutra. Um, like these were, he was an interesting guy and, and had an indelible impact on Victorian society and British society. Definitely an outsider, not like John Henning Speck. Speak. Speak. The other character in this movie uh, who seems a bit more of the Victorian cloth. He's going out to explore, to shoot lions and (laughs) find some lakes. It's his first lion, Matt. Yeah, he's just ready to do it up. Classic imperialist style. Uh, <laughs> well, and from what I was reading, he was also a pretty remarkable figure in his own right. And the movie maybe does him a little bit of disservice in the way they depict him. Prior to meeting up with Burton, he did a lot of exploring in the Himalayas. It was one of the first Englishmen to cross into Tibet. Um, you know, he did a couple of expeditions into Africa. He discovers Lake Victoria. He's one of the first people to hypothesize that that is the major source of the Nile River which he was right, even if his science was maybe a little bit half-baked. I always lie to get to the truth, Ben. Yeah. (laughs) He was a pretty important figure in the Age of Discovery as well, and he just died very young, and I think that has meant that his reputation was never able to reach the level of someone like Richard Burton or, you know, Livingston, who's in this movie as well. But it also doesn't help that he was a much less romantic figure. You know, Richard Burton particularly as depicted in this film, but even by the history, was a very romantic figure. He was a sword fighter and he wore disguises and he went on crazy adventures and then he wrote quite well about them. And Speck is kind of, is it, sorry. Speak, it's Speak. Speak, okay. I just have to change it to (laughs) S-P-E-A-K. Speak, they kind of make out to be like dyslexic or something, like he can't write in this movie. And I don't know if that was true at all, but they, they basically make a big deal out of like, oh, he's not a good writer. He's just a good explorer. But Burton's like a real deal literary icon. I can't speak to that. I do know that he did publish written accounts of all of his expeditions. So, you know, somebody was writing those. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's where we start with, is this amazing true story of these two lions of the age of exploration, the age of colonialism, um, and the adventure that they went on, this expedition into Africa, was pretty incredible in its own right, just for the trials that they faced and overcome. As far as I can tell from the way it's described on things like Wikipedia, the movie sticks pretty closely to the journals that these men wrote. So this was what their expedition was like, at least according to them. No, the movie does a great job in sticking to pretty much the facts, which might be a little bit of a bad thing in this case. I don't know. We can talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. Well, one question I had is, is this movie a biopic or is this movie like a plot movie? Because it feels a little bit like a Burton biopic Yeah, in the way that the story goes. The movie is definitely on Burton's side. Right. It wants to tell his story. It was directed and co-written by Bob Rafelson, for whom, you know, Richard Burton was an idol. So that is the the movie he wants to make is about this hero of his. It's bonkers to me. Like, how did he know about him from New York City, America? Like, <laughs> Well, listen, Bob Ravelson had a very interesting childhood. When he was 14 years old, he ran away from home to ride in an Arizona rodeo. Yeah. Like, this guy was kind of crazy. Yeah, he did a lot of things uh, all over the place. Should we talk about him a little bit here? Yeah. So do you have much history with him as a director, John? You know, I'm sure you're familiar with some of his early films. I've seen all of his major films, like Five Easy Pieces and Black Widow. And I grew up during the Black Widow slash Postman Always Rings Twice remake era because I'm sure. older than you guys. But <laughs> so I remember <laughs> I remember all like those things pretty vividly. And I'm a big Monkees fan. So I didn't connect the, the two the, the monkeys Bob Rafelson to the Mountains of the Moon Bob Rafelson until this very <laughs> exercise. And I also found uh, that... Should there be a Davy Jones cameo Completely fascinating. Exactly. There's no music. Like, <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, it really is. It's a weird place for his career to start. The monkeys, which are these sort of satirical, purposefully artificial... Yeah, cynical, yeah. ...creation. Um, because then he makes his name as a filmmaker making some of the most grounded and realistic films in American history had ever seen up to that point. Yeah, it's fascinating. The same person did Monkeys and then produced Easy Rider. Exactly. But then if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. They are both countercultural yeah. in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, so he starts uh, BBS, which was uh, with a couple of other guys, which was a really important production company during the new Hollywood era in the 1970s, because they produced um, some of the really iconic independent films, iconoclastic films. You mentioned Easy Rider. They produce uh, Last Picture Show. You mentioned that Ravelson directs Five Easy Pieces. He directs The King of Marvin Gardens. These are really iconic films, and it's also only like a five-picture run, and then BBS breaks apart because the heads of the company all have sort of different aspirations. But their legacy is still felt today. I mean, those movies are still shown at film schools, for sure, and at film festivals as being representative of a style of American filmmaking that is something we don't want to lose sight of. And you can see the track from being obsessed with Burton to then being obsessed with rock and roll and mm -hmm. hippies and Easy Rider kind of stuff. 
Yeah. And then back to being obsessed with Burton. Like it all does sort of tie together in a weird way. It's always like kind of countercultural. I can see the same person that's invested in those countercultural things being invested in telling the story of a lesser known Victorian rock star kind of guy. And Burton is very, you know, anti-authoritarian in his own way. And I think it's also the adventure element. I mean, if you look at Rafelson's history, he was a hard-living guy. There's a really fantastic profile on him in Esquire. I just wanted to read a quote from it because it so perfectly sums up the kind of tall tale life that he lived or said he lived or aspired to leave. And this was written when he was in his 80s, retired in Aspen, where he'd been for a long time, because he's effectively, you know, out of the industry after this movie gets made. It's not a success. He already had a rocky reputation. He assaulted an exec on the set of one of his films, um, or at least purportedly did. Allegedly, um, yeah. Allegedly. So the quote was, Rafelson's stories would come to include swimming with sharks and springing Dennis Hopper from a mental institution. Hopper later pulled a gun on Rafelson, who called the actor's bluff by putting his mouth around the chamber and daring him to pull the trigger. Then there are the tales of his brushes with the law. According to Rafelson, he had been incarcerated and tortured on four continents, maybe three, who keeps count, quote. (laughs) And once hanged by his feet from the ceiling of a Colombian prison, an experience he describes as painful, not so much because of the wires attached to my nuts, but because Perry Como was on the radio. Oh my God. <laughs> Here are elements that we're pulling together. We've got this amazing true story. We've got this crazy counterculture director who gets what he wants and he does a great job doing it. And I just want to briefly make mention again of William Harrison, who wrote the novel Burton and Speak which is the basis of this movie. It's a biographical novel. It's historical fiction. And, you know, clearly he did his research. And then he co-writes the screenplay with Rafelson. He's not a particularly, you know, fascinating figure otherwise. You know, he, he lived a professional writer's life. You know, he taught writing at a university. He published stories. and But he did also write the story that Rollerball is based on, which I think is interesting. Very different story there. But yeah, so those are, those are our, who we've got coming into this. I think at this point we can probably start talking about the plot and maybe we can highlight a few of the performances and uh, Roger Deakins. So yeah, let's get into the plot. Let's start talking about what the structure of this movie because that was what really interested me and I did a pretty deep dive. I'm going to get kind of technical on you guys. But I think it's important to realize why movies like this are only screened in classrooms to really bored kids uh <laughs> you know but sorry. The thing is, i i loved those classes when i was a kid i know <laughs> i'm sorry uh thank you for buying me the dvd john <laughs> okay so the movie opens on an african expedition but it's just speak going into like a desert port town he wants to go in he's got a bunch of guns and i guess he wants to hunt and do some exploring. Apparently going into the desert is not allowed unless you have like an official expedition and the only one in town is with Burton's crew. So we meet Burton and his homies and they're kind of having a chat on like a rooftop. Well, when we first meet Burton, he is praying in a mosque. Yes, and he's disguised, which is definitely a little... A little allusion to his famous pilgrimage to Mecca. Right. Exactly. And already there are some problems because we're establishing Speak, we're establishing Burton, 
we're establishing two other random guys who are going to be gone within the next 10 minutes, <laughs> but we're giving them equal screen time to Burton and speak. And we're establishing the world that we're in. Okay, these guys are explorers. There's a colonial element to all of this. They're outsiders. There's just a lot going on. And in the same way as like Burton being disguised in a mosque, you really have to read between the lines on that one. Watching that for the first time and not knowing anything about Burton, I'm like, okay, he's in a mosque. Like, I don't know. You kind of have to telegraph that that's really important. And I think a problem with this movie is that Ravelson may have known too too much much already. Yeah, He knew too much. He like wasn't discovering it for the first time when he did it. And so intrinsic knowledge to him is thrown at us really fast, really hard. Sure. I mean, you're right that the mosque shot wouldn't make any sense unless you knew Burton's history already. It doesn't really tell us that much about his character. We don't know why he's there. There's no reaction that's like, what is a white man doing in a mosque? You're in a disguise? What? What is this? The other thing that's confusing is if you don't know about the Mecca history, he's sort of introduced as a liar. Like he's introduced as a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And is he a villain? Is he like, who? who's the hero here? Is it Speak or is it him? And I didn't know... I mean, I don't want a movie to hold my hand, but I think it's important to know like who your guy is. And this movie does not set him up as your guy. I thought, I didn't know the actors or anything. I didn't know right. Burton. When he got fucked 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, he just died. <laughs> <laughs> the movie doesn't do itself any favors by casting Patrick Bergen and Ian Glenn yeah. as Burton and Speak, respectively. Now, I like both of these performances. I think these are both really good performances. Yes, I do too. But but <laughs> it's but Burton is a character who needs to be almost larger than life. You need Jack Nicholson. Unless the movie is like a classic biopic where we learn everything about him over time. This movie wants to throw us in the Burton deep end and then they cast Patrick Bergen and this is his second ever film credit. It's his first lead role. Yeah. And he was fine. He was good. But again, it felt like I was watching like the real home video of their expedition and not the fantastic movie version. When he's got when he's got the scars on his cheeks and the mustache and the hat on, I'm like, oh, man, this guy's like he's like the new Errol Flynn. Right. (laughs) Now, there's actually an interesting connection here. Um. Patrick Bergen didn't really have much of a film career after this either, which is surprising because, again, I think his performance is pretty good. Next year, the year following, 91, he has Sleeping with the Enemy. Which was huge. It was a huge movie. (laughs) Huge movie. And a good follow-up. I mean, that was what cemented Julia Roberts after uh, Pretty Woman catapulted her into the stratosphere. That's what held her there, was that film. So there's a fun connection there. And then the year after that, Patrick Bergen is sort of the secondary bad guy in the second Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy adaptation, Patriot Games. Wow, he's really a big part of the Back to the Movies universe. (laughs) (laughs) He's one of our guys. He also played one of the monsters in Tremors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's a graboid. Um, But then after that, he's done. He's making TV movies. He barely has another feature credit after that. But he's great, and he leads this expedition with Spec and some randos. And they all look the same. And they get their spot blown up by some tribe or something with spears. And they get really brutally slaughtered. This scene is is intense. I thought this scene was pretty good. It starts off with the guy playing the, the 
recorder and he just gets a sword through his back and you're really in the shit all of a sudden. And there's this whole drama of speak reloading and maybe retreating and there's a lot going on, but it's a great action scene. It's it's really it's really cool. Well, another important thing that gets set up right before this and how the movie almost immediately starts doing speak dirty historically is they imply that he causes this ambush by not, you know, by leading some tribesmen back to their camp and not recognizing the danger that they posed. And of course, Burton is like asking all these great anthropological questions. Were their faces painted? And actually, I think this exchange is pretty good because it's a great way of showing what made Burton special as a person that he cared about the cultures that he was interacting with. He cared more about the people. Yeah, and that was a moment that on the first watch tracked. I got that. Sure. There's a lot of other things that on the second watch, with the subtitles on, I'm like, oh, that's what they were saying here. But it's just, I am giving these movies my attention, and I'm not in a theater, but I'm at home, but I'm watching without my cell phone on me. You gotta get <laughs> you gotta, me. You gotta give me a little bit more to work with. Well, yeah. You, you mentioned, <laughs> you alluded to earlier that this battle ends with a couple of pretty horrifically violent occurrences. There's the spear that goes through Burton's face, a thing that really happened to this guy, which is crazy. Like in one cheek, out the other, right through his mouth. Um, very alarming uh, to see that in the movie. Um, almost worse later when he's got the bandages around his face and there's like just blood soaking through them. But on a very small little technical thing, because I, I love talking about these things, but the movie made me think he was dead for two minutes and he's our main character. Like, and there's no big reveal that he's still alive. It's just like, there's a shot all of a sudden where he's like writhing or something. Or maybe it's the next day he's been rescued. Right, because no, we start with, when we cut from Black, we're on Speak. We're on Speak, who's been tied up, and we watch him be mutilated by one of the tribesmen. Which is also extremely brutal. That whole sequence is insane. We should we should do a quick unpack of, of Ian Glenn a little bit too, who plays Speak in the movie. Um, you listeners who haven't seen the film aren't going to watch it because they can't. Um, <laughs> you you would probably know Ian Glenn as uh, Jorah Mormont in Game of Thrones. Um, he had a pretty big part in Downton Abbey. He was one of Mary's suitors early on in that show. He's playing a pretty tough role in this movie. Speak is a very unpleasant person. He's sort of mannered and foppish, but also violent and racist. And yet we have to kind of like him because his friendship with Burton is the emotional core of the film. And you do kind of like him. He's all right, like for all of his faults. I'm not like looking at him being like, oh, what a jerk again. Right. I think what Glenn brings to it is this sense of somebody driven by compulsions this movie is obviously set in victorian era and the victorian era's great legacy is one of repression and burton is this amazing figure because he just casts that aside he makes no allusions towards it at all he is liberated in many many ways like many of the people in the society didn't believe they could be and one of those people the movie posits is speak who feels like he is trying to pretend to be a person that he is not constantly throughout the film. And I think Glenn does a great job capturing the pain of that and the fear of that. 
he's definitely portrayed as someone who's manipulated by the people around him. Like there's the Richard Grant character who sort of convinces him to do what he's about to do. And then there's the British society and you kind of have no sense of him and his motivations purity. Like who's really driving the bus with this character? And it gives you a sort of sympathy, I think, to Ian Glenn and his portrayal of this character. Well, and then there's also the complicated relationship between the two guys, which gets kind of muddy later on. And his relationship with Richard Grant. Like it's it's all over the place. <laughs> I think Glenn is such an interesting actor too, because he can have so much gravitas like he does in those later TV shows. Here he plays a pretty wormy guy almost, you know, very, like I said, sort of foppish almost, even though he's, you know, an explorer and a hunter. But then his main bread and butter in Hollywood is playing like cheesy villains. He's like the bad guy in Tomb Raider and a bunch of the Resident Evil movies. You know, when he grows out that little five o'clock shadow, he looks pretty evil. It's the bone structure. Yeah. <laughs> He's got those cheekbones. Very sharp. All right. I'll stop making tangents on performances until we get to the Victorian sequence. Which is right now. And let's talk about the Victorian sequence. Let, this is my biggest, biggest analysis that I'll get into. We've done 17 minutes in Africa. Culminating in a dramatic action scene. Culminating in a pretty dramatic scene. We've Where established- people died. Or, And people die. We've, we've established- are two main characters and they have a relationship. It's a little weak, honestly, but we get it. There's these two guys and now they've gone home. Now, we have 20 minutes until we're going to go back to Africa. God, was it only 20 minutes? It was it felt 20 much minutes. Longer. It and we had, we had 17 scenes in those 20 minutes. Really? 17 scenes. And I'm, I'm not counting if they walk from one part of a room to another. 17 scenes. Wow. And I, I wish I had all my notes. I, I left them somewhere else. But basically, I broke down every single one. There are the two main characters. We're also introduced to two very important secondary characters. It's Oliphant and Isabel. We are also introduced to seven additional characters who will play some role in the rest of the movie. And then four more characters that have lines and are going to be around, but aren't going to have like major scenes with the characters again. What I'm getting at is it is an information overload. It is too much, too fast, and there is a lot of stuff being established and a lot of stuff going on, but not as much as you would think. On second watch, I was like, okay, we just did this whole setup for this one thing, but we had to introduce three characters for it, and it's just, it's too messy. It's exactly for someone who's read all the journals and who's read all the shit that's written about this stuff, and they're going to be like, oh, yes, Lord Houghton's party that Burton <laughs> attended on May the 4th of 1857. Yes, of course, it's exactly how it would have looked. Like, <laughs> I think this actually gets into John's question earlier of, you know, is this a story of the expedition or a story of Richard Burton and how the movie can't really decide because Richard Burton's life must include Isabel. She was a key figure in his life, although not hugely at this time. You know, they would later go on to live together in Damascus and have all kinds of adventures. The movie, because it wants to tell the story of Richard Burton, needs these scenes of him and Isabel because she's too important a person in his life. But the movie also wants to just be the story of this one expedition in which Isabel is barely a part. Now, Isabel's played by Fiona Shaw, uh, Petunia Dursley from the Harry Potter movies. Uh, she looks exactly the same. <laughs> like 20 years later, she looks exactly the same. 
Um, so a lot happens in England and it's basically what it boils down to is Burton starts a relationship and Oliphant wants Speck to do Speak. another expedition and publish his book. And maybe Oliphant has a crush on Speck. Speak. God damn it. Speak. <laughs> John, you were, you mentioned this earlier. Who plays Oliphant? Richard Grant. Richard E. Grant. Oh my God. This is like his third movie credit. He has With Nail and I in 87, which is one of the all time great first performances. And he's great in this movie too. He just pops in a way that, as much as I like Bergen and Glenn, they don't. Yeah. They don't. They don't pop in the same way. And you can kind of see why, of all the actors in this movie, he's the one who's had the most illustrious career. Yeah. And he is, he is, I've only seen him in With Nail and I. And then Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which he plays like disgusting alcoholics in both of them so it was really nice to see him looking at his finest i was like oh, very wow dapper. he is a beautiful man should we talk about the sort of homoerotic undertones subtext of the film yeah, yeah. totally it's ridiculous <laughs> john what do you think oh i just thought it was really heavy-handed and ridiculous considering i'll you know i'm sure you guys also looked it up that it was uh, probably invented that he was probably not a homosexual character well, who are we even talking about? Because we've Oliphant. got Burton is fully, it seems fully straight. He doesn't really oh, have anything. Uh, yeah, you think? Considering the way that they juxtapose <laughs> those scenes together, that was out of control. Burton, <laughs> Burton is the person historically who had a reputation for potentially, you know, uh, having, you know, more adventurous sexuality because he published long, you know, a, a part of his translations contained long essays on homosexual sexuality and he, you know, investigated male brothels when he was in the army. So he was a guy who had that as part of his legacy. Meanwhile, like, Oliphant is nothing like the character in the movie in history. He was like, you know, a crazy Christian Zionist who did amazing work for uh, uh, Jews in Europe during a time when that was not a thing people were doing. In this, he literally just wants to make money and sleep with big. He's the gay villain of every Disney movie. He's like Scar. But I do think that to be a little more charitable to the film, I think Ravelson has hit on, you know, this as one of the central forms of repression these people are experiencing. Absolutely. That that the most repressed pe person in the movie is Speak, and the thing that is most repressed about him is his sexuality. Yeah, and I just wanted to track back a second with the whole um, translation of... of Kama Sutra and stuff, they do call out to that. They've got that scene with Isabel with her mother, remember, or not her mother, with Lord Houghton's wife. Right. Great. Four more characters. Uh, <laughs> they're in the library and she's found the translation of the perfumed garden. And yeah, it's all there. They're giving us all the information. But like, dude, but like, I'm what? watching this. Come on, man. Like, I just had to meet 20 people and now I got to deal with... I mean, I kind of got it. I kind of got it. But like, it just was. I'm sorry. It's okay. a lot. I'll, it's a lot. It's too much, man. It's too much. What did Lawrence of Arabia have? It just had him walking through the desert. There was one he scene. He blows out a match and then he's in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's got a friend. He's got one friend that he's walking through the desert with. And then like another guy comes from a thousand gets, miles yeah. away and shoots that guy. It's great. You have okay. like 20 minutes to absorb the new person in Lawrence of there Arabia. Is, there is a propulsion to most epics that this one seems to lack. This, And I do think that this Victorian sequence, as important as it is to establish key elements of the story, like Isabel, like the pressures from the Royal National, from the Royal Geographic Society, 
like the the relationship between Speak and Oliphant, it still is dead weight narratively. It's just too much set up without any plot or story. After this 20 minutes, we get back to Africa. And this is where the movie's going to live for a while until we get to our final act. And it's um, going to shine brightest right here. Sure. Yeah. We uh, have the sequence you, where they start you know, putting together their new expedition. This is going to be a little bit better finance than their previous one. They have a lot more bearers. It's the term they use for the, the local laborers that they hire. And we get this great introduction of another very, very famous historical figure, Sidi Bombay. He was a... a, a, a a guide on many, many English expeditions into different parts of Africa. He's the Tenzing Norgay of African exploration. Somebody who probably had as much to do with the success that these men experienced as the men themselves, but who's been kind of looked over by history because of his ethnicity and nationality. And the actor playing him is wonderful. He's great. I was trying to find more info about him. I thought he was in... Serpent in the Rainbow, which is a really interesting Wes Craven film, but as far as I can tell, he isn't. I think he was just a, a African actor because I think his other credits were just African films. Because they shot but this on location, which you can tell. I mean, one of the best parts about the movie is the photography of the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so I just love I love that they give this guy a pretty prominent role, and I think the performance is really great. The look is really iconic with the pointed teeth. So I love everything about City Bombay. So we can kind of zoom through. I mean, these are some of the best scenes in the movie, but like it is very episodic. I'll just I'm just going to kind of list them off and kind of we can talk about whatever we want, but basically there's the the some of the team members escaping and stealing a bunch of stuff in the middle of the night. There's the lion scene. All right, pause. The lion scene where we introduce Delroy Lindo. Yes. yes. You know, arguably the second most famous actor to come out of this yeah. movie behind Richard E. Grant. He's yeah, on the the good wife uh, and the good fight. <laughs> sure, a big Spike Lee collaborator. Yeah, for me, he's always going to be the cop from Gone in sixty Seconds, a movie <laughs> I loved when I was a kid. He's got such a soulful face, um, particularly his eyes. Um, he, I, actually, I thought he was, you know, he's got a, a featured role in this, but he doesn't speak any English. But his story is really important to Burton's emotional journey. And I think Delroy Lindo is kind of this genius bit of casting there because just with his eyes alone, he can sell this tremendous empathy and you can understand why Burton is so drawn to him as a person. Yeah, he's very expressive. I, I got to say, though, like I didn't fully understand that whole character arc because did Burton change at all? In anything, or did he just become an even better person than he already was? Burton's arc, if he has one, is one of some disillusionment. Okay. He starts with a sort of an air of invincibility. He gets stabbed in the face by a spear. And what does he say to his doctor friend? Oh, I stitch myself up. Like, whatever, no big deal. And what he discovers is that even if he can't be physically wounded in a permanent way, there are emotional scars that he'll never recover from. One of them is the death of Delroy Lindo's character, and the other is the betrayal of Speak. 
I see. I think that's being a little charitable. I don't think <laughs> the movie does as good a job portraying that as I just made it sound. But it's it's there. We should also, before we get too far into these scenes, talk quickly about the cinematography. Because this movie was shot by Roger Deakins. Yeah. That was like the thing that put me over the edge. I was already excited to see the movie. I love Roger Deakins. Who does it? He's an incredible cinematographer. So this movie comes, it's 10 plus years into his career, but it's still before he really breaks out as a major talent. I think really what starts that off is his collaboration with the Coens, which starts... Yeah the next year with Barton Fink. That's where he really starts to get more expressionistic with his photography. And it's something I thought this movie kind of lacked. It's pretty staid landscape photography. He gets a few shots where he can do some cool silhouettes um, or things like that, but he doesn't, you know, compared to something like the cinematography of epics, like the David Lean epics, this feels very flat. It feels very PBS, which I think adds to the video in your classroom element. (laughs) It's like David Attenborough. I was really bummed because the cover of this movie or the poster is this beautiful shot with the sunset where they just have discovered the first lake and them being carried and it looks amazing. And in the movie, it's like super flat. It's just them in front of the lake. Yeah. I mean, but that said, Africa is just an amazing landscape to look at anyway. And Deacon shoots it competently, even if it's not his most artistic endeavor. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned, John, that like, you had you pretty strong memories of, of that in yeah. particular from when you first saw it. Do you want to talk about that at all? It was exactly how I remembered it. But in relation to what's come since, it seemed a little flat. That <laughs> That's the only problem. To become a master, you have to cut your chops in Africa, right. you know, and right. like, go on shoots like that. I'm sure this was a hugely influential film for him. I'm sure he learned a ton of stuff. Moving on, we also meet a local tribe, and there's the great spit scene. If you want to talk about homoerotic things in this movie, there's... You mean when they shoot white liquid on each other's faces? (laughs) What are you talking about? There's the beetle in the ear. Another... Slightly Jeez. homoerotic situation. Oh man, that, that one. That, yeah, that scene. That scene got me though, man. Oh yeah, he, totally. Oh, oh. The earwax. What crawled into the ear was horrifying. And then when he, then when he went at it with the compass. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that was fucked. And that was also real, right? That happened, yeah, that really so. happened to this guy. I think that's the reason this movie got made in the first place because the stories were telling themselves. And you mentioned that this is where the movie is its most successful, and that's just because how impossible these expeditions were is fascinating. Everything was against them. I mean, walking the thousand of miles to get from the coast to the heart of Africa, it's a death march. But okay, one thing, little thing, but important. And another filmmaking thing that kind of failed me was the little side plot that kind of happens between these episodes, which is that they start breaking some of the important equipment that they need in order to survey the land and to measure certain elements that will allow them to prove their discoveries. And they cover this in such a way that we never see the actual equipment other than in (laughs) wide shots from far away. We never see any equipment break. We never understand what a chronometer actually is. It's a very accurate clock. Something. That's what yeah, he tells us. Yeah, they say us. that, but yeah. I don't... What? Okay, how are you going to do anything with it? I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I've never read a book about this. On, on a tangent, having accurate timekeeping was actually a huge boon towards navigation. It was a big part of why ocean navigation was able to advance the way it did during the Age of Discovery, when they didn't have stars to navigate by, having an accurate way of telling time and knowing your speed and direction would then allow you to navigate uh, in a way that they just, before we had clocks, you couldn't do. Yeah. See, we need your character in the movie telling all of that to me, the idiot. (laughs) 
So there's that, which becomes kind of important later because of the whole ending of this movie. So then the next big thing, they stop at a village, but it's like a peaceful village. Yeah, this was interesting. Um, I'm not 100% sure on the history here, other than I guess there were Arab trade routes and slave routes through Africa, and that a trader has just built a house here. They have a meal with an Arabic person and then have interactions with African villagers. I was confused because I looked at the cast list. Where is Omar Sharif in this movie? Oh, he has like the one line. He has one line in a wide shot. I was like, okay, yeah, that's Well, him. it's it's like a two shot. It's not like crazy okay, wide. Yeah. It's when Speak comes up to complain that he wants to be in charge of the caravan himself. Right. He Burton's having a little get together with a person called the Sultan, who is played by Omar Sharif in a nice little cameo. Yeah, yeah so it wasn't this guy. But anyway, they there's some tension between Speak and Burton because Burton's taking his time and Speak wants to keep going. Burton's like, look at what we can learn from from the people. And Speak kind of wants to get a move on. But Burton's like, we broke the chronometer. Screw it. But then they keep going. <laughs> oh, because so- you told me that, that you put in the notes that this is when the chronometer was broken. And I did not remember that happening at all until you just explained how the movie tells us it happened. Aren't we glad we've had multiple hours of dissecting this movie that was supposed to tell us everything. It's true. We're into hour two at this point. Well, I mean, so like the next major thing that happens is Burton's legs, which is also horrifying. Oh, I hate swollen limbs. When they show that quick shot of his legs just blown up like balloons, that made me squirm. And this is a really interesting scene for two reasons. One, it continues to assassinate Speak's character by having him too cowardly uh, to (laughs) cut open the swollen legs. And then, of course, there's the kiss. The kiss. <laughs> oh, boy. Speaking of things being maybe a little bit too on the nose, I don't know that that was explicitly necessary to show, again, sort of speaks repressed homosexual desires. However, I do think it's a great way of showing that it's Burton right. who frees him. Right. And that's Burton's great appeal is that he is, you know, uh, he breaks down the walls for others to follow. Yeah. Um, so then they, f- they find the lake. It's a very triumphant scene. They find a lake, Lake Tanganyika. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great scene when they first see it and Burton's being carried. And I mentioned earlier, there's this, the cool shots of the lake, which weren't as cool as the poster. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a great moment of triumph, but they have to prove it. They have to explore the lake and make sure that it feeds into the Nile. And that's kind of a failure. They end up starving and getting sick on the boats. and Yeah, their bearers get dysentery and other other waterborne diseases. So they're like, all right, we got we to gotta keep going. This sucks. This wasn't the one. And then they get basically captured into a kingdom, a slave-driving kingdom. This is the final set piece of the Africa sequence is them in the kingdom and then how they leave. And another great YouTube ready scene. They are forced to give gifts to the king and it's the first time the king ever sees a gun and shoots somebody and that scene was amazing. I really felt the colonial aspect. I was like, wow, these are the first of many white assholes that are going to give guns (laughs) to Africans. (laughs) It's true, yeah. For hundreds of years. This is a monumental occasion. I also thought it's pretty effective for the tension of meeting new cultures where they have no effective way to communicate. Their customs and rituals seem strange. And finding some way to break through is laborious, but, you know, ultimately rewarding. Or maybe not. They also take Delroy Lindo back as a slave. 
which sucks. They do. He was like from he. They say he was a villager from this kingdom before, and that you know he got into a disagreement with the vizier character. You know the priest character, not the king. Also, what about this like prince and his zebra? Loved the little prince. Oh, yeah. Those were the kind of things where I was like, this is awesome. I love watching this movie. This is actually the plot detail that I thought strained hardest against, again, the sort of queer underreading in a way that I found kind of unnecessarily obvious, which is that in order to earn his freedom, Speak must pleasure the, the, the sister of the king. And the movie goes out of its way to show like how detestable this act is that he has to sexually pleasure this woman. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's it is he's doing it against his will, so that's that's kind of messed up. But yeah, it's just it's oh, and she's like so comical. She's like, yeah, ah, ha, ha. yeah, she's she's not great. <laughs> he does that, so he gets permission to leave to keep going to look for the other source. Burton's gonna stay behind because he's still kind of ill and still kind of a prisoner. And then there's sort of an intercutting between Burton back at the kingdom and speak. Finding Lake Victoria. The shot of his discovery of the lake is a really interesting one. Uh, we, we see just a glimpse of the lake and it pans over onto his face. He pours his water on his head, slicks back his hair. Then he grabs a rifle and the camera swings back and we finally get like a wide shot of the lake and he fires his gun from his hip, just sort of up and out into the air. There you go. Symbolism. Discovery yeah. at its finest. Uh, <laughs> Symbolism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so meanwhile, Burton's back at the ranch and he's dealing with the oppressions of the kingdom. And We don't have to go into too much detail. He gets drugged. He then has a pretty incredible confrontation scene where he is brought before the king drugged and they murder Delroy Lindo's character in front of him. I, I thought that scene was very effective. I thought... Bergen's performance in it is really, really good. The emotional roller coaster he undergoes, starting the scene delirious out of his mind and ending it basically disavowing everything that he says he believes in by disparaging this entire race of people. That was a sad scene. He says, you're a small people. You deserve to be forgotten. That is, it's upsetting. I mean, it's, he's saying it because it's a slave running society, but there's a lot there. And that line is important because we it helps establish one of our themes Ultimately, he is released by the king and the king says to him, tell them my name in your country. So what matters to the king is fame. It's the same thing that matters to speak and arguably to Burton as well. Yeah. Um, so then speak comes back and they, they have kind of a blowout argument where speak is trying to fudge his work a little bit. He's like, I, I swear I found the river, I, the river source. I know I got it. And Burton's like, did you measure it? And he's like, no, I didn't measure it. But <laughs> he's like, did you talk to anybody in the native language? He's like, no, but I know it. It was higher. Come on, man. And and Burton's pretty scientific about the whole thing. Yeah. And they get, they get pretty upset with each other. And then just a quick Lord of the Rings. Then we walked all the way back. Like nothing <laughs> happened on the way back. <laughs> You're right. They walk back. They go to London. We have our final act, which is the falling out between Speak and Burton back in England and the legacy of their expedition, which catapulted Speak into stardom and fame and from which Burton was largely left out. And then there's this pretty funny scene. Burton's like kind of out on his ass, has nothing to do. And somebody sets up a meeting between him and Livingstone, who's like another super famous explorer and seems to be a big shot at the Geographical Society. 
is the one thing I really wanted to talk about at the end of the movie. It's my favorite scene in the whole movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a great scene. And it's all because Bernard Hill is so good in this yeah. role. And yeah. it's just like, it's a carbon copy of the Scar comparing scene in Jaws. But the fact that they're these two stuffy Victorian British people doing it, like pulling down yeah. their underwear to show the bite mark on their ass, the scorpion sting on their ass. I does loved the, it. Does the homoerotics kind of go without saying at this point? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great scene and it was funny and it was sorely needed after another 10 minutes of Victorian back and forth. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us home. They set up that there's going to be a debate between the two men, Speak and Burton, to try and resolve whose theories about the source of the Nile is correct. But before the debate can happen and before the two can reconcile, Speak dies in a hunting accident. And the movie ends... With Burton realizing that he'll never be able to repair the friendship, the companionship he had with this man, and going on to the next chapter of his life serving as a consul elsewhere in the world. The end. We do get, I do want to make a quick mention of one other performance. We get a one scene performance from Roger Rees, who plays like the death mask sculptor for Speak's death mask. This was a thing they used to do like to preserve a person's facial features after they died. A very common practice that for some reason we don't do anymore, or maybe for obvious reasons we don't do anymore. And so Roger Rees plays the Sheriff of Nottingham in Mel Brooks' iconic Robin Hood Men in Tights. And so this scene I could not take seriously at all, even though Rees is trying to play him as this very sensitive artist who knows he's imposing on Burton by making him confront the face of his dead friend one more time. But all I could think of was, he dared to kill the king's dare! (laughs) (laughs) So can can we just talk about speak suicide for a second? Or not suicide? Because let's, come on. The way the movie presents it, he flustered, he's flustered, he can't handle looking at Burton and he goes on this hunting thing. Was, was I reading this as a suicide? Was anyone else reading this as like, well, maybe he did that on purpose? What do you guys think? It's vague at best. Do you think it's intentionally vague, John? I do. I think it is intentionally vague because in real life, I think it was intentionally vague too. It's such a sad ending that they kind of don't have a reason for it and they can't really make it a dramatic moment but it's real right but it's real yeah because it's real so like it's it's like they didn't know what to do with it since it was such a like random accident that they had to sort of insert something the official ruling on the investigation was that it was an accident his biographer said it was an accident right the movie certainly intentionally creates this ambiguity it has scenes earlier showing that the ball is largely in speaks court to reconcile with burton that he can have his friendship and his fame. Um, and we didn't mention this, but he, it's revealed that he figures out Oliphant has been totally manipulating him into hating Burton. And he feels pretty shitty about that. So I think the movie structures it as just like, he's ashamed of himself. I think you're right, but they, they couldn't come out and do it explicitly because it's not really what happened. <laughs> or they can't prove that that's what happened. So they were like, eh. I guess it's the right way to do it. It's like the only way, like that's how a, a reader of a biography of the guy would... Also, it would be like, he died this day, like make what you want of it. And the movie, I guess, does kind of a good job of making it pretty ambiguous. But even still, it was interesting. 
So now that we've gone over some of this stuff, you guys want to lay down like your conclusions as to why the movie falls a little short? John, what do you think? I think the performances don't really match the typical director's style. I think he needed stronger personalities. You're talking about like Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces. He clearly knows what he's doing when he's got actors who have an innate charisma. And these, these British actors just played it straight. And they were great, but the movie lacked a sort of driving force that the charisma sort of, and you said it before with Richard E. Grant, like he's, he adds a certain element that the movie's missing with his personality. So I think that was one thing, maybe the director didn't really match the content. And then the other thing is just that it, all, all of this being based on real events, explorers discover things that are already there. So it's inherently anticlimactic in a way. And <laughs> then he also says it. He says it at the end, he says this, there's a little speech about like Africa's already it was already there and we're just looking at it for the first time, but we don't we didn't do anything. Right. The drama of an explorer movie is fraught from the beginning. And I don't think that he really works through the dramatic climax the way that he yeah, should have. He didn't he didn't come up with a solution on how to deal with that fragility. There's no point of view to that problem in the Explorer movie. And I think part partially because he probably already knew all the facts and it was also familiar to him that the poetry would have been obvious to everybody else, but it, it wasn't. And for him, the facts were what made Burton a hero because that's what he had read and that had made him idolize Burton. Yeah, that's my main thing is that I think it was too inside scoop on what actually happened. And that as much as people complain about movies making shit up and coming up with drama, sometimes you got to do it because right, you got to right. figure out a way to tell an effective but story. But I think what I thought was really interesting is the guy who did Five Easy Pieces couldn't manage a better cynical viewpoint. He couldn't deconstruct the age of exploration the way he deconstructed America in the 70s. Exactly. And if anyone could do it, it would be him. But he just didn't quite make it. And, you know, maybe it was out of his control, but it, it, or it was too big of a task. But or, yeah, I mean, his, the, his movies, I will say this, tended to be smaller movies. And even though he says that this is like his most personal film, it doesn't feel that way when you watch it. Right. So my take is, and uh, uh, I'm going to read a quote from Roger Ebert's review to line it up. Ebert was writing about the Victorian age. Um, and he said, Alistair Crowley wrote that Victorians like Burton seethed with impotent rage at their doom, which was to live within the repressions and evasions of the Victorian period. If the Burtons were not banished altogether, their careers and lives were rewritten to give the age more proper heroes. A flamboyant original like Burton was toned down into a famous traveler and translator. Now here's a movie to tone him up again. Only, I don't think the movie does that at all. Burton was a transgressive figure. He literally translated pornography in an era that is known today for its repressive sexuality. He was a dramatic figure, as he says in the quote, a flamboyant original. And yet the movie presents him like a very, very traditional hero. And I think that's the movie's great, great mistake. I even think that the actor did a pretty good job of being able to do that, but they don't have the reactions to anything. No one reacts to him. There's no shock at anything he does. Everyone's just like, oh, you're wearing some clothes that are a bit out of style. There should be people being like, oh, what have you done? Like, there's none of that. <laughs> it's a movie. It has to be over the top a little bit. 
look, this is going to sound kind of strange, but uh, I kept thinking about Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, which tries to reframe this rebellious new generation of royalty by presenting her as like an American teenager. I feel like that's what the movie needs to really convey who Burton was. And it's just not there. And it makes the movie just feel non-essential. And that's lethal. That's that, that kills the thing. Okay, so let's talk quickly about its legacy. The film didn't do itself any favors by being a little too staid and straight-laced and boring and badly structured. But it also had cosmic events working against it. The film was financed by a production company named Carol Co., which was a huge production company in the 80s and 90s. They made the Rambo films. They made T2. They made Total Recall. They made Basic Instinct. They were a dominant force in the industry, but... Within a few short years of when this film is released, they go bankrupt. They just keep financing the wrong films. Ultimately, it's bombs like Cutthroat Island, a really terrible movie that... uh, Oh, John, did I... I'm sorry, do you like Cutthroat Island? No, 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 I didn't know, but I remember Cutthroat Island, yeah. So it's bombs like that 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 drive it into the ground. And although that happens quite a few years later, it really ties up the distribution of this film. After it has a kind of a botched theatrical release, it then goes on to basically having no home video release because the company ceased to exist about the time that they would be putting that out. So there is a little bit of an interesting story about the theatrical distribution. Nat, you called that to my attention. You want to mention that briefly? Well, yeah, they were distributed by TriStar, who also produced movies. And TriStar was in the midst of promoting another costume epic film called Glory. Right, which had a limited release in December and goes wide later this year, 1990. Exactly, and is killing it at the Oscars. Mountains of the Moon just gets totally overshadowed by its big brother, Glory. TriStar has no interest in promoting this movie. They, you know, they kind of just bury it. Yeah, and it, it, it came and went within a week. I also think the movie's poster also sucks. Hey! <laughs> One... The title is a great title in the literary sense. It emphasizes the sort of astronaut-esque exploration of completely alien environments. And it's the actual name of the place to which they were traveling. That's all really great. But it's a title that doesn't mean anything to most people. And then you pair it with a poster that's just like a silhouetted shot of like a guy being lifted up on the chair... I swear, I looked at it, I'm like, is this a sequel to Fiddler on the Roof? Like, what's happening? <laughs> so I can't imagine anyone would have seen that poster, again, who didn't know this story and would have gotten excited by it. Yeah. No, I, I just, I like the pretty colors. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't represent the movie in the slightest. No, it doesn't sell the movie. So on a budget of $18 million, the movie opens in two theaters and makes 67 thousand dollars on its first weekend this is disastrous so it eventually goes wide to 187 theaters now this was reasonably common at the time for a independent film or art house film but it's still pretty low that's it's just not getting a lot of play it's not in a lot of theaters and it winds up with a total domestic gross of four million dollars and as far as i can tell from the information available on sites like box office mojo and the numbers there was no international release so that's its final gross. Four million on an eighteen million dollar budget. Um it's it's I mean that's a disaster. It deserved better. It really that's did. Sad. And I can't understand why they didn't release it in in Europe, where yeah. people might have known about Burton. Known who these people are. Yeah. So I think that's... it's worth mentioning that 
the movie's legacy other than being shown on channels like Bravo in the 90s and being available in crappy rips on iTunes store. It was really bad. Don't rent it on iTunes. <laughs> uh, is that the director has spent a lot of the rest of his life and career trying to get the movie shown anywhere. Anywhere and everywhere. He, like if they invite him to a film festival and they're like, hey, we want to show five easy pieces. He'll be like, no, I want you to show Mountains of the Moon. Like oh. it's his favorite thing that he's ever done. And all he wants to do is get people to see the movie because he feels like it got an unfair shake. The movie has some pretty prominent um, um, supporters. Francis Ford Coppola, Alexander Payne have have made statements about how much they love this film. I mentioned Ebert gave it a really positive review. But it, it, in, in terms of the millennial, like people that are into movies like us that have never heard of this fucking thing. It has. See, yeah, it's gone. That's what I think is so <laughs> sad about this is I've seen way worse movies that are way more famous. I mean, we've already covered Pretty Woman. I think this is a much better movie than Pretty well, Woman. Yeah, but I mean, even like worse, like art house sort of, you know, historical movies. For all the stink I was giving this movie, it still gave me a lot of good moments and a lot of interesting history to look up afterwards. Like, it, it's not all a fail. It's it's emphasis on the people more than the events does sort of set it apart from some other films of this ilk. You know, it feels like a very interesting, very human movie um, set against this epic backdrop. Uh, the characters feel more detailed and more humanely drawn than some adventure characters do yeah it just doesn't get all the way there yeah it's great for mrs hall's eighth period english class (laughs) (laughs) okay let's do our quick tie-in to the year 1990 so john the idea here is that we are looking at the year 1990 and trying to figure out what exactly was going on culturally and in the film industry that made it special And we're trying to fit these movies into different narratives and themes that we've been exploring. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on, you know, things that this, how this movie feels very specific to 1990 or if it does at all. I mean, maybe one of its flaws is that it doesn't. I think it doesn't. I think maybe that was one of the problems with it because it's sort of the emphasis on the people instead of the exploration seems like a very 80s approach. I think, or even a seventies approach to something, or a seventies approach. Also, the Britishness of it. I, I think in nineteen ninety, we were maybe moving away from England as a as a source of all cultural historicity. It definitely does not fit with Pretty Woman or the stuff that comes out around it. I, I like what you said there, where it's like the nineties is an age of of dawning globalism, of new respect towards. The legacies of non-Western cultures in world history and a reevaluation of European discovery as being a more exploitative act than a beneficial one. Um, and this movie, although it lightly touches on some of these issues, is so in love with the Burton myth that it doesn't want to delve too deeply into that legacy. So the things that we've talked about so far are, you know, the 90s being largely an era of transition, right? I think that's the biggest thing that we've, we've come into. It's the end of the 20th century. Um, it's the end of a millennium. There's a lot of stuff that's looking forward and there's a lot of stuff that's looking back. I and mean, this feels like one of those things that's looking back. And at least from what we've seen from the four movies we've watched so far, the two that were looking backwards, aesthetically, Tremors 
and now this failed to find an audience at the time, which is interesting. I don't know if we'll continue to see that. You know, we don't really have enough data points to make that a definitive theory yet, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Additionally, we talked a lot about um, Clash of Cultures being a big theme. And obviously this movie fits into that on a literal level where we are, it's about a person who love to explore culture. But I actually feel like the movie is less interested in those cultures coming together than something like Hunt for Red October or even Pretty Woman, which is about finding the common ground between two disparate elements. Here, the common ground that needs to be found are between Burton and Speak, who are of the same culture. But the movie just does such a bad job at that that conflict. I don't know, man. It just, that drove me crazy. I'm... I'm gonna just be obsessed with this movie. For the rest of my life. I'm gonna write a thousand. Page you're gonna be. Book. You're gonna be giving your your child friend a copy of the DVD. <laughs> just be like, you have to watch this so we can talk about why it fails. Yeah, I'm gonna have like a chalkboard with like strings. Speak. Uh, and, and, it doesn't say this. Oh God. So I think we've done a pretty thorough job covering a movie that almost nobody's ever going to see again. Uh, Dude, Ravison is going to listen to this. He searches every day on every (laughs) podcast thing. Well, if he does, Bob, I I just want to say, I think you're a tremendous filmmaker. Um, And although I don't agree that this is your most important work, I certainly appreciate why you might feel that way. Yes. Thank you for making the movie. So on that note, um, this is Ben. This has been Nat. And this is John. Thanks for having me. Signing off for Back to the Movies. Woo! Oh, yeah, and uh, preview for next week? Oh, um, let's just say uh, you may want to order some pizza. Ooh, and sharpen your nunchucks. <laughs> <laughs> I like that my hint was subtle, and yours was like, guess what? You should also uh, put on your half shell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome, guys. All right. Until next time. Adios. Thank you. Bye-bye.